Another episode of Not Your Average Operator with me, Paul Mellon McFadden. We've got Tio Ralph. How you doing there, Tio? <laughs> Dude, ah, that always makes me laugh. I'm good, man. How are you doing, brother? Yeah, really good. I, uh, I, I think all of us did a bit of a run through uh, that amazing interview with, with Melanie again. And just, you know, it makes me laugh every time she calls you Ralph, but it's something very sweet to hear her say it. Not not as nasty as when as when Mike and I say it. How you doing there, Mike? Um, I'm pretty good, man. Every time I hear Ralph, I picture Ralph like Ralph Wiggum from The Simpsons, and then I put Ralph's face in there. It's like, you know, that I don't know. It just pops in my head. But uh, no, I'm doing pretty good, man. I'm just prepping. Um, going out this week with uh, a couple buddies, actually, actually from Afghanistan. That was there with my 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 buddy Chad. And uh, we're heading out to Vail, Colorado to get some skiing in and some snowmobiling and just kind of hang out and get a guy's trip in. So, yeah, awesome. I was uh, lucky enough to, to do a bit of snowboarding in Colorado many years ago when I was quite a bit younger with my pig of a brother, Hugh. <laughs> and uh, we're lucky enough to be joined again by Kelly. How you doing there, Kelly? I'm doing great, guys. Thanks for having me back. It's awesome to have you back on. How have you been? What have you been up to recently? I've seen some uh, hunting photos. Uh, yeah, a little deer hunting with a boy. Both of us got nice bucks. Uh, most recently, digging ourselves out from the, the snow that you see on the TV from Texas. We had a lot of that too. So zero degrees last week with minus 15 wind chills. And, and today it was 65 and I was running in shorts. So that's, that's Oklahoma weather. <laughs> and uh, are, are, you, are you back to running again? I never quit. What do you mean? Well, I... Well, you had the, uh, you did the the barrel roll with the, uh, with the paintballing with you. Like yeah, that was only, a, that was a cracked rib for, well, two broke ribs for a couple of weeks. That was not really a long-term thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I dove over something with a paintball gun and managed to break two ribs, but I got the guy I was trying to shoot. So that's <laughs> all that matters. Yeah. Just a quick one for the listeners who might not have, uh, been with us for the early episode with Kelly. Your, your audio is not broken and Kelly's not underwater. This is Darth Vader, the Marlboro man. And that's a natural set of uh, singing, singing pipes there. <laughs> that's, that's a deep voice. I got, I got a lot of, I got a lot of comments from uh, friends and family in Australia about the, the vocal range. Wow. Good, good. Any, uh, any like nice looking women they were doing it. Don't tell my wife, but you know, <laughs> they're, they're only that's what attracted her to me in the first place. Like, you know, almost 30 years ago. So. The rumors are true. All the women in Australia are smoking hot. So I'm just changing my trip from Vail to Australia. I'm getting on changing my flight. Appreciate that Intel there, Millen. So, and have you been R Ralph? What have you been doing, man? You've been, uh, Doing, doing a bit of work. You've been hitting the gym. I have been hitting the gym. Um, just doing some strength training. Nothing too crazy though. But uh, uh, nothing, man. I, it's been really good, actually. Uh, like I said, I've just been doing some work. Uh, got to do some some flying, some actual flying last night, which was kind of interesting. Um, and uh, just looking forward to you know linking up with the family. And we have some trips planned. Visiting some uh, some of my wife's side of the family down in Missouri. So that'll be kind of cool. I'll probably be there a week after I get home. Um, yeah, I mean, we're trying to make it down to California to visit my family, but you know, that state is, uh, it's interesting. I'll leave it at that. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's- uh, I've, got, I've got travel booked to get home and see my family as well. So I'm hoping to get, get, get back and see Mama McFadden and the, the team. Catch up with my my brothers and sisters and the the wife's family as well. It's been it's been a while since I got back there. And how about you, Mike? What do you what have you been up to, yeah. man? Other than your upcoming trip to Vale? Uh, just putting up with your guys' crap. Honestly, like I try to have a productive week. I actually have a job, and uh, I do stuff. And then I get these messages about the episode this week and everything about like, hey, how can we make everything convenient for us when you know just keep Mike up all hours of the night and you know, make him do everything. And we just sit back and then we're pilots and we just have an excuse. Um, that's kind of like how my week goes normally, dude. But this week <laughs> I'm having some, uh, I had a few beers earlier 
now I'm having coffee to stay awake with you guys. And uh, that's kind of my natural progression. So I, I, there you go. There's your answer. Again, the link up for everyone, uh, the four time zones, it's Ralph and I, Ralph and I getting up super early on the coffees. We've got uh, Mike, Mike staying up late and Kelly's on central time, I think. I, I think that's what you guys call it. So he's, he's uh, restricted his beer intake for the episode, but I think he'll have a couple of frothies when he's done. But that, that's how the episodes go. You know, we link up four corners of the world and uh, get uh, hopefully some quality out to you guys there in podcast land. So I saw a couple of the questions uh, that you were thinking about uh, dropping here. We're, we're hoping for a sort of a bit of a Q&A, a bit of an in- interview with Kelly, because this is a guy who's just got an amazing backstory. And uh, we wanted to get him back on so we could dig out a few uh, nuggets of gold and share them around. So, uh Ralph, you want to kick off with some of these questions here and get into Kelly's backstory? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just going to say something that I know that he would never say out loud, and he probably doesn't even like hearing it when he's in the room. Um, but the truth is he was hands down the best mentor and leader I've ever had the, the really good fortune uh, to be around and, and really watch. And, and I say that because it was in the military, there's great leaders, and then there's... <laughs> Nats are great leaders. He was obviously one that was absolutely amazing. And he came at such a critical time, not just in my own personal life, but in a lot of the, the guys in the unit that and ladies that served in his unit and under his tutelage. Um, so I just thought it would, it would just be, it would benefit us as a group. And then hopefully for the listeners to, to listen to someone who's actually, it's easy to talk about leadership. It's different to actually have some accomplishments under your belt. And he legitimately has accomplishments. And I've said this before, and I really mean this. His name is a currency in aviation. Like I've dropped his name more times than not. And as soon as I do, you can just see people light up. You know, you like, you know, you're trying to set those connections. And I'm like, well, you know, do you know Colonel Hines or, you know, uh, Major Hines, depending on what time frame we're talking. And immediately people are like, yeah, I know Colonel Hines. And it just, it's an instant uh, connection and you can tell it's like that instant level of respect and you can tell that he was doing amazing things even it doesn't matter what rank he was at you can tell that he was just a good leader through and through at every level that he reached so having said that I just thought I, it would be stupid of us not to take advantage to kind of pick his brain on um, the trail of success that he's left behind right because even though he hasn't written books I've lived uh, under his leadership and it's it's real it's legit and um, it's, I'm a better person because of it. So anyways, I, I know he probably hates hearing this stuff and cause he's not one of those guys that likes to beat his own gums. But, um, anyways, having said that, I, I guess the question I really have for you, sir, is what was the, um, you did talk about some of the influences that, that your, that your father had, right. And mostly, and then some of the, yeah, I remember you saying that you learned from the leaders on what not to do. And that's actually a good way to look at it. But is there any specific moments um, in your leadership that you like, where, you know, just whatever position you were in, where you sat there and said, man, I need to continue to do this, or man, I need to stop doing this. Like, is there anything that you saw as a young captain, a major, a lieutenant colonel, and, a, you know, or even a full bird colonel, where you specifically realized that whatever you were doing was working? Is there something that you were like, I need to continue to do this because I can see the success and the growth and the people that that are underneath you or, you know, serving with you, I should say. Wow. Okay. So not setting the bar too high there. Thanks. That was, that was <laughs> awesome. Um, so I, I guess if I just come in here and go, I, I usually just pull it out of my fourth point of contact and make it up as I go along. Probably not going to float this, this conversation, um, which, which I did quite a bit. Um, so I've learned to quit doing that early on. I think to answer some of that question is, you know, there's a lot in leadership you can talk about, but I think what I figured out early on was that, you know, you have to apply a different leadership style for different people in different situations. So there's not like a, a can go to, you know, if this do that, it's everybody's different. So you had to approach each situation differently. Sometimes you got to um, lead by you're going to do what I tell you to do. And then there's other times you got to get everybody on board and move out with it. Um, what I learned early on though, was getting to know the people and getting to be part of their lives that work for you. Um, genuinely caring about them. Um, playing hard with them as well as training hard with them, fighting hard with them. And then, you know, following the, the age old adage of 
you know, I, I won't ask you to do something I wouldn't do myself. So, so that was kind of a, what I learned early on. And I just kept morphing over that. Um, and then, you know, always knowing which guys to trust, who to pick to surround myself. Cause I'm not ever the smartest guy in the room. I just got lucky enough to pick the best people around me. They all made me look good. Uh, you know, like you, Rafa, except for the time, you know, that one time we won't talk about right now, but, but, but yeah, that's, it, does that answer that sort of? It, it, it does. Uh, I mean, that kind of makes sense and it absolutely goes in line with kind of what I saw uh, under, you know, our time together serving in rank. Um, but there's a lot of people out there who do end up with that one style, you know, their own leadership, they have a natural style or people who are naturally strong and people are naturally compassionate or whatever. That ability to change and flow with, this, with the situation there, Kelly, where were you at when you were picking up that that was a real key to be able to adjust? Probably company command the first time uh, back when I was a captain. Um, because if yeah, I, I, I'm a, I don't know if I, I, the only thing I would say, I don't like to say I'm good at anything, but I'm pretty good at reading people and, and kind of figuring out what makes them tick um, within a short period of time. So you know, I was always, a, that started early on being able to kind of decide what I was going to do with certain people and what I wasn't going to do. You know, some people you can, um, kid around with joke and call them all kinds of names and they're just going to eat it up, and move out. Other people are going to hurt their feelings with that. So it's, it's, a uh, you know, that art of leadership versus a uh, science. I'm one of the guys that don't think it's a science. I think it's an art. I think you're born that way. But a lot of the times I think people, uh, want to follow you and, and sometimes it's just the leader that they just want to follow them I don't, I don't know how to explain that it's kind of like the kids in the playground somebody's following one kid around that's making the decisions and he's not been to leadership at all. um and, and i think i got lucky and it, it started early on in life and just kept going that way and then as i got older the better at it i got reading people it, it's really about people um, leadership is um and, and i jokingly say it's about manipulating people uh, Nobody likes to say that, but you, you do manipulate them a little bit when you're leading them. You're getting them to do what you want them to do, and hopefully they want to do it as, as bad or at least as much as I do. And if you can get them to do that, then they'll go a long way to get that done, you know, versus the direct method of, hey, I told you to do it, which is, is never as, as good. So getting their buy-in is very important. That's interesting, and I think that is important because a lot of times in our profession, we were doing things that we didn't necessarily – wanted to do but somehow we convinced ourselves that we did you know yeah yeah <clears throat> i i see that a lot with like you know especially in like the the special operations community is uh, well really across the board but i mean for, for for my job and stuff and i've seen it with the 160th that, that i've worked with is like some days you just have to do the basics and like the non we'll call it the sexy stuff and it's just like Hey man, we need you guys to come out to get basic roper called and just do elevators and do fast roping. So basically what that means is a helicopter goes up to like 30 feet, you drop a fast rope and guys just slide down for iterations. And they're like, we don't want to do this. You know, we, there's so much more stuff to do and like whatever, but there's stuff that just has to be done. Um, so it's like all across the board, you know, like I, I, I kind of want to ask a question about this in a minute uh, to you, Kelly, but um, no matter where you go, there's always stuff that has to be done when it's just like, Hey, you got to take out the trash in the morning. Like there's no, you don't get a pass. Like there's always shitty stuff you got to do. And then there's always the other stuff that you got to get done to get to the, the stuff that everybody wants to do. Um, so, so kind of my question is, um, so you're former 160th and the way the army is structured, like you guys can go into specialized units, but then after a while you make rank, it becomes like a staff position. And then you rotated back to the conventional army, which is like really when I met you when you were in Afghanistan, how was that transition of going with working with special operations forces and that type of community and mentality to moving over to the more conventional side as a leader? Oh, wow. Yeah, that was a, so I was in the 160th for what, eight years. And I was a platoon leader company commander there, S3. So task force commander, you know, so almost the whole time I was there, I was leading special ops guys. Um, and I thought before I went there that I was pretty experienced and good pilot. When I got there, I found out real quick that I was really a noob. I, I had well over a thousand hours, but the guys flying with me had 4,000 that I was supposed to command. Um, so 
I, I turned into learning a lot mode and, and kind of providing some decision making, but those guys were real good at what they did already. Um, so moving from leading those types, when you say, hey, I want to do X and you don't have to get detailed and they'll figure out how to do it and they'll get the, you know, they'll take the commander's intent and move out. Um, going to regular army, I, I got told a few times, Grandpa, I even heard one of the colonels, Colonel Tate tell me this, now General Tate, but he, he told me on a regular basis, this isn't the 160 at Kelly because I was trying to train the troops in the mission we were doing in Afghanistan, the stuff you were on with us, you know, when we were doing either a vehicle interdiction or a, a hasty attack or whatever it was to the 160 standards. Um, so what I would say is, you know, the 160 has got awesome people, good training and really good equipment, but the regular army guys were just as capable of doing that. If you, if you did the proper training before you went down range. And then like Raf said, we had a year to, to train up. Um, what I did have to watch those, I was like the senior, one of the senior pilots in the unit, whereas I had come from the one sick where I was a junior guy. I get to the battalion command. I think, Rap, correct me if I'm wrong, we didn't have anybody over CW3 in the battalion. I mean, the the senior pilot um, that was supposed to be my main advisor was a W3 with less flight time than I had and had been in the Army about 10 years less than me. So and normally that would be a CW4 at the battalion level. So it was so we really took a, a bunch of junior guys down range after years worth of training and then they did awesome stuff. And, and it wasn't because me, it was because they, they, you know, I kind of laid out what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. And man, they ran with it. Um, scared me sometimes because I did have some junior guys that would, I would do something and then I'd turn around and they were doing it. Um, and, and sometimes they probably weren't capable of doing, you know, the one wheel landing on the side of a mountain. Um, cause I'd done that a lot in the 160th and I was, you know, I, I kind of, a lot of butterflies watching somebody else do that. And I, I remember Captain Smalley one time landed behind me there, Raf. Um, I landed in a courtyard and browned out. And when the brown the, the sand all settled, I think my blades were about five feet from a wall. And I was like, wow, that was close. I take off. And then here comes a young captain doing the same thing. And I was like, had to take a you know breath. And I was like, okay, I'm not gonna tell him you can't do it. I'm I'm gonna hope for the best. So, you know, that whole uh luck in command sometimes is uh, more important than really knowing what you're doing is, is tempting fate and getting away with it. So. And just to add texture, since we're talking about this stuff uh, too, is leadership and how, you know, to make it palpable, there was, and I don't know if you remember this, sir, but there was a time in uh, when uh, they were in placing an ID right outside of our fob and the weather was absolutely garbage. It was like maybe half a mile and you gave us the green light. I was on QRF. It was me and um, Twink. Uh, Jason Collins, and we, um, so they super crewed us for it, and we we went over, because the Apaches ended up uh, eliminating the threat, we went to recover the bodies before, you know, they'd be used for propaganda, but I remember thinking, like, the weather was absolute garbage, and you looked at us, and you said, are you guys good with this, and I, I mean, without question, I was like, a thousand percent, because we knew what the mission was, and if the contrast to that is, when I was in Iraq with a previous command, I can tell you how many times I would push back when they'd be like, hey, we need you to go in this garbage weather. But I just didn't trust them. So I'd be like, well, I don't know. I, you know, it's not that I was trying to put uh, holes in their plan, but I just didn't have that level of trust. Whereas when you told us like, hey, this is what, you know, this is the mission. We'd be like, yep, we're on it. And we immediately started like preparing for, you know, flying with that sort of weather, which was, you know, kind of contrary to what we normally do. We actually got really low because that's how we could see the ground it was just it was just that terrible it was probably a quarter or half a mile um but i mean that, but i remember that because i remember in iraq specifically when the previous command would send us on these missions and the weather was garbage and we would just be pissed and i was never once mad at the fact that you said hey this is what needs to be done we're like roger sir we're on it and we were you know we launched and that yeah. just i mean that's you really gotta you know the the weather will kill people quick and it's a Every mission we did downrange, where I let you guys do stuff that, or I went on, or whatever it was, I always looked at it as the risk worth the payoff. You know, and I was like, if it's a mail run, no. If it's going to go get, you know, the tier one bad guy, or, and I got to crash on the LZ, I might do that. It, it depends. But, you know, my bottom line was I got to be able to look the family in the face when I get home and tell them, you know, hey, Raft didn't come home and the mission he went out on was worth it. And that's how I did everything on that. So every mission I would, when I okayed that stuff, I was like, is the risk worth this? And, and can I look them in the, the face and say it was, it was, it was worth the risk. So yeah, it's yeah. not an easy uh, one. Raph, were you saying the perhaps in that previous command, there wasn't that same sense that you'd only get asked to take that elevated risk when there was an elevated reason that it was just 
you didn't you didn't have that same trust that the people at the top were really only reserving those high risk no for the special most of us felt like we were just um trying to build metrics to so that the command could brag about how many hours we flew and blah 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 you know i mean just it's all so because you get awards off that stuff and it was um it was i mean like i said colonel Hines showed up at the critical time because i a lot of people don't know this but i actually dropped orders to get out of the army um i left i was i was like 12 years in and i was just so disappointed with you know uh what we were doing and the command didn't help and that i was gonna get out and then eventually colonel Hines showed up and then at the time my coming commander paul hansen uh just kind of talked to me about it and said hey man like this it's different if you haven't noticed it this isn't the previous command like we this is this is a command that cares like what we're about to go do in Afghanistan is is real. We're not going to just fly just to fly and build metrics. It's it's about the mission. And it was, and I started seeing it like physically. I started seeing it, and so I completely uh, changed. You know, I and ended up reversing my track, and thankfully uh, stayed in stayed in stayed in Hawaii. And then we deployed. And it, again, it was the best year of my life in in my army career. You know, that, that kind of leads me into the next question. Um, it's all really good. It's kind of how it's laying out. Uh, Kelly, was there was there a certain deployment or a certain mission that you, maybe you were a part of that you finally got to that point where everything that you were like, your expectations of your career, like when you come in, it's just like, this is what I exactly joined to do. And this is, man, it was like job satisfaction and like, the icing on the cake and the cherry on top, like everything just all culminated in, into this one deployment or one specific mission. Um, wow. What, what was that for you? Uh, well, you know, I, I commanded six different times. So total, like, I don't know, 14 years in command with UCMJ. So I had a lot of, you know, this, that's a hard one to pick from the 160th. I had a whole lot of cool missions. They let me command a unit where I was in South America on my own. Uh, so I was the head dude and with a couple, two or three helicopters doing stuff. Uh, you know, who thought Kelly Hines running around drinking Agua Diente in Colombia was a good idea. <laughs> um, but I, I, I was I was having a great time because I was going to the embassy and internet facing with the you know the local uh, generals and stuff. So that was awesome. Um, some people would probably think brigade command, but, and, and I deployed all over the 160th, but I got to tell you, it, it's, it would come down to task force diamond had the, the year we spent in Afghanistan, uh, with, you know, Raf there and, and you, where I met you, um, mostly because I think I was at that point, I was, I was pretty confident in my leadership capability. I was confident in the troops I was taking down the range. I had a great bunch of soldiers. Couldn't ask for better. Again, the army saw fit to give me a, a task force out in Zabul province all by myself. Um, they gave me Apaches and always 58 cavalry guys, infantry company, Chinooks, a medevac company, and then kind of let us kind of run rampant, uh, flying a bunch of Lithuanians who were, you know, make me look small. And I'm six, two, I mean, those guys were all bigger than me, but they were awesome. Um, then we got, you know, the Navy seals we had there, and the Romanians. And, uh, so in that year, we even set up our own Afghan pilot fighter training academy. So that was, um, it had some tough times. You know, we lost a couple of crews there while we were there. That was, you know, that belonged to me. They weren't working for me at the time, but they belonged to me. Um, so that was rough, but yeah, that I couldn't have thought that if I, my career had ended there, I would have been extremely happy. That was the best deployment I ever had on. You can't rebuild it. You can't do it again. Um, if I'd ever went downrange again after that, I know I'd have been disappointed it just wouldn't have been that it was because it just clicked all the sub leaders were doing their jobs all the, the every soldier in that task force you know was was there for a reason they knew it um and i i think it was it wasn't just me it was just a way that family clicked um and, you know we had our patchy company was from colorado they weren't from hawaii i mean and they they fit right in so it was that was an awesome deployment and i'm still close with that whole diamond head family. I consider almost all of them brothers and sisters, you know, even the ones I had to like crush for getting in trouble for all kinds of weird reasons when we got home, but, but we're still family. So yeah. It, yeah. So that's a bond that you can't break. And, you know, a lot of civilians wouldn't get, you know, why would you want to go to combat? Um, and, you know, and I would argue with why would you go to college to be a lawyer if you don't want to go, you know, to the courtroom. 
So as a soldier, you know, getting to lead people in, in combat was, yeah, that was the best time of my life. That, that year was the best uh, year in the Army. And I had 35 years in the Army. So. Yeah, that's that's awesome, man, because I, Raph and I still talk about it. But, you know, I, I have five deployments, uh, a lot less than you do. But uh, I have five, and that's still to this day, uh, 10 years later, that's still my best deployment, hands down, for the same reasons. It was very special. Can I ask a question there? Earlier on there, uh, Kelly, you're talking in that leadership piece around getting regular army guys towards the special forces capabilities and transitioning from leading the really, really senior pilots with that 4,000 hour figured back down to sort of where you're now one of the more senior guys and getting those uh, junior people towards that sort of capacity. And now you've just talked about there with the task force diamond head, that that was your best command and that you had the match of your leadership capability, the capability of the people you were leading the uh, task being really important. How did you train your guys in the lead up to that to have that exceptional performance in in the end in the field? Uh, well, yeah, that's a yeah, a lot. Graph and say we were busy, um, so I had I took command a good year before we went down range. So I had a whole year uh, knowing I was coming there, we were going to do that. So I started thinking about how I wanted to train it, and then you know, first thing I did was assess the capabilities of the guys. So I went to flying with. A whole bunch of people uh, when i first got there i was bouncing all over the place rap doesn't know it but i pulled everybody's personnel file before i ever got to hawaii so i already kind of had an idea what i had going um but my my thing with training was to make it as realistic as possible not waste time not just blast holes in the sky so, so to go out and you know do the what we were going to see down range and one of them we came up with was a range on the big island where we were you know the blackhawks would come in and land that it, as we were landing would take fire um, and, the, and they would break off and I would have the 58s rolling over their shoulder and firing live ordnance, you know, into the target area. So we got used to, okay, we're going to break left. You're going to come over. So the TTPs, tactic techniques and procedures were there. The same way with VI, we practiced how we we're going to vehicle interdiction until I was really tired of doing it. But you had to have that down. Where do you land? Who's doing what? You know, which way are you going to go if you take fire? And you had to make it as realistic as possible. Um, I also had a habit of being, I'd jump in like the fourth airplane. And as we were flying, I would say chalk three just got shot down and make them land. And then, then watch what they am their mission commander would do. I'm like, because you're going to have to step up, um, you know, and if something happens to me, somebody else got to take over and, and all the way down the line until that W one that's in there is, is in charge. So I was big on that it was as realistic as possible with contingency training. You know, if I got bored on the way back, I would call an instrument flight, you know, break up because of weather and make everybody shoot approaches, even though it was Honolulu and the airspace is crowded as hell. And, you know, the civilians hated us because of it, but it, we had to do it. Um, and then we went over to Colorado and did our high altitude training, you know, put guys at those high altitudes heavy and made them like work through what you're going to have to do when you're in the mountains of Afghanistan. So you had to train hard and, and take the risks, not be risk adverse in training to get people to, to where they were comfortable doing combat. So, How far down did you have to break it down to build up to the scale of the command that you had there? Because it sounds like a big unit you were in. When you guys deployed, uh, we had about 500 soldiers in the task force, um, and you know, quite a few airplanes. But each one was a little different. You had to break them down. You know, some guys could take right to it, other guys didn't. And so that that's really where aviation leadership comes into effect for the captains, platoon leaders. You've got to be able to look at the crew mixes, figure out what crews can do what. Um, some crews are just going to do what I call ash and trash and ring routes. And that's that's okay. That's what we need them to do. And then you've got what I would say your star players are. Um, with that though, sometimes you got to put in the B team to get them experience. So that's 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 the difficult part of it, knowing when to do that. You can't always go with your A team because A team won't always be there to do it. Um, didn't really have to break them down. Uh, I just was present. I to tell you the truth, but from what I could tell, a lot of them were falling over themselves to try to to do it right. I, I think they were a little bit intimidated because of the one sixtieth guy, which is kind of silly. But I think everybody was worried about me coming in and be a special ops and looking at them like they didn't know what they were doing or they were the second string and, and i wasn't um i have a habit of being really quiet when i come in and just watching so everybody thinks i'm hard uh, because it's easier to get easy on people afterwards and then just get hard on so i you know I'm, i just kind of quiet watch and i don't make changes until i've seen where it needs to be changed i don't like to create 
you know, new ways of, you know, making a wheel and I don't have to. So most of the unit did well. I had, I did have a couple of guard units deployed with us. One was really good. Now that was awesome. The other one wasn't, I had to step on her neck and stop letting them do stuff. So it's, yeah, but it didn't really break anybody down. I did enjoy like running the warrant officers quite a bit because I did run while I was in Tampa for three years straight, like, I don't know, 10, 12 miles every other day. So when I got there, I was like, we're going for a run. <laughs> the old warrant officers didn't care for that too much. I actually meant, yeah, awesome. Great, great. Really good answers. These are, these are really good concrete, uh, specific sort of stuff here, Kelly. I meant uh, when you've got a massive command, how, how, how detailed did you get before building back up that overall mission capability? I didn't necessarily. Oh, I got what you said. Yeah, we started at like the very small level, like air, one aircraft doing his mission. And then you would bring in like two aircraft to do a joint mission. Then you start trying to find some ground forces to be in the back to do the mission. Um, I think a couple of times I've took HAC soldiers or headquarters that aren't infantrymen threw them in the back. So people would be back to the crew chiefs had to deal with. Um, so yeah, I didn't, I didn't take them down to what I would say squad level tactics were. I took them probably down to platoon to see where they were. Um, and they were all additioning the whole time too. Cause I knew I had to break the battalion up and send them to three different locations when we got there. So I was trying to pick which company was going to go for which commander, because I knew that battalion commander's strengths and weaknesses um, what the mission was going to be, where they were, and, and a little bit, I was I needed to pick guys that were going to go with me that I knew would mesh with what I wanted to do. So you know, I kind of I, I picked the, the company based on that. The, they were a little bit I really can't say stuff like aviation, but a little bit more cowboyish, but a little bit more audacity. So that's why I picked the Charlie company to go with me. Um, and they, but all three companies were solid, but, you know, and then I did a little bit and they didn't like that. I did a little bit of balancing too. I took some crews out of one company and put them in a different company before we deployed to cross level that. So that was, that was important, but, but, you know, did we ever get up to like a battalion or brigade level air assaults? Like I saw in the hundred first one, I was a baby captain. No, but I knew we were going to do that in Afghanistan. I knew it was going to be two to three ships taking down small targets and small villages and being able to make decisions on their own out of out of contact you know so i had to build the leaders that would move in my intent what they thought i would do and then they would go do it and they didn't have to call and ask all the time so that was that was critical yeah something i'd like to point out too is um i think what one of the the best things that colonel heinz did was i felt uh and again comparing it to the previous command when i was at iraq was i never felt like um I think most of the guys felt like we could fail and it would be okay. Like there was never, you know, like that whole risk averse thing that he just kind of alluded to, you know, I, I knew that as long as the intent was good and it wasn't stupid or malicious, like, you know, it's whatever, you know, just, you're going to keep going. You're going to keep training. Whereas the previous command, everybody felt the same way. Like you didn't want to mess up because you were going to get, you're going to get brought heat on you and you knew it because there was just, it was so risk adverse and the micromanagement was just so, like just ingrained in everything that we did. I mean, you basically just stood there and waited for someone to tell you what to do so that you could do it. Versus when he showed up, it was kind of like, hey, this is the end state, get it done. You're like, but you're not telling me exactly how to do it. <laughs> that, that could be because I was just a little bit lazy. It's hard to say which one that was. But, <laughs> uh, but no, you, if you don't let people fail, they can't learn. And you've got to underwrite honest mistakes. I mean, and it's a dangerous profession. I don't know if you remember the 58 that went out, you know, did the, the high orbit and the low orbit and then came right down on a motorcycle that proceeded to blow up under them and took out, the, you know, the chin bubble, almost severed a tail boom and all that. And they flew it back. Yeah. You know, they were both thought their career were over because I mean, I was like, I just looked at, it, I was like, well, that was pretty idiotic. It's a good thing you're alive or they have to kick your ass. Uh, you know, my boss wanted to fry him because of that. And I was like, sir, they were doing the, what I, you know, they're out doing cavalry scout stuff. This is, yeah dangerous he's like why were they below a thousand feet like they can't see a target at a thousand feet with their eyeballs they got to get down there right. um and i underwrote you know i was like okay we'll push that one over to the side we'll take it apart later you guys okay yeah okay good move out yeah. i mean a lot of other commands i've been in would have fried those two kids for that so. yeah yeah you know if, if any of those guys are ever you know and, and and women ever listen to this podcast i just want to give a shout out um from the task force guys, those, those 58s, man, like they made our mission so much easier. I mean, they hung it out. They would come in and do, 
they'd, they'd risk it to, to come in and help us out and nab the guys that we got, man. It, it was just so cool watching them. And, uh, and then also just really good relationships back at the FOB coming back and like going up there and just welcoming us into the CP and hang out and talk about the missions before or after. And then they were just like, what do you guys need? What do you want? This is what I can do. And this is what I might be able to do. And they, they hung it out. So thank you guys. If, if you, if you ever do listen. Agreed. And I think the, I think the other powerful thing, and I think what it actually did manifest and it did spill into the mission was kind of like you said, that family environment. I've never had a deployment where I could literally go into every tent, whether it was the medevac tent, the 58s, the Apaches, the lithos, the other soft dudes there. It didn't matter what tent I was walking into. It, I mean, we, we were on first name basis. I knew about people's families. I knew about, you know, um, all, I mean, all that stuff. So it was kind of cool because when we went out on missions, it wasn't just, oh, those are the 58s. Like I knew he was flying them. I, I knew the story. We had, we probably just had lunch together. We just had breakfast together. And that was across the entire task force. I mean, I, it was it was a special moment because it was literally, I, I felt like I knew everybody in every little organization that came together. It was it was the coolest thing ever. And I, I'd never experienced that again in all of my deployments. And I had three. It was the culture. And I definitely want to say that it started with Kelly and going in. Like I stated before, the other one, I walked into the room just to meet him and be like, hey, man, we're, we're task force guys and we're here to work for you. And just want to introduce ourselves and kind of like explain capabilities. And at the end of it, he's just like, you know, like putting a blade. And he's like, let's go kill some bad guys. And it was like, wow, he just said that, you know, like that was the deal. And it started from there. But the rest of the time, that was the mission. Like you felt you had purpose, that you were part of it. Like no matter whether you were the comms guy, the, you know, just the mechanic or anything, everybody felt like, hey, I'm part of something special. And there was nobody that was better than anybody else. And it was just family and going around. What can I do for you? Hey, how can I help you get better? What do you need up and down? You know, it, it was the culture and it started from the top and it was it was the best. Raf, that um, feeling of being a, a team, having that mission and purpose, getting the commander's intent, but that real close bond you were describing about knowing all the 58 pilots and eating together and all that sort of stuff. As a question for you as a guy who was with Kelly during the build-up and then the deployment, how was that achieved? Because it's it's obviously very, very different level of capability to get to and everyone everyone would be like yeah yeah we'd, we'd we'd choose that they'd choose the outcome but it's very hard to know how to get there so what was kelly doing differently in the lead up and during the deployment that you did not see on other deployments that resulted in that super top bond yeah that's actually a really easy answer so he just spoke to you like a human being he spoke to you i think it was his consistency because i we saw him often he'd always be down in the flight line he'd come over to the company area not to talk business he would just come over just to see what we're up to um and and then i don't know if i'm allowed to say this but we had some training on the big island where he opened and sanctioned, sanctioned a cantina and i think that was pivotal it really was believe it or not that was one of the coolest moments in my army because training is supposed to suck and train like he said he's not kidding i mean we trained hard but it was we couldn't believe from what we had just come from which was very risk adverse environment micromanaged to i mean to hell um and then we have this guy who's who says hey we're going across the pond to afghanistan do real mission stuff and we started seeing it in our training but then at the end of like the two to three week you know pretty intense tempo Hey, by the way, we just opened up the cantina and everyone can have two beers. Wink. And I mean, we're having beer pong games with the chaplain. And it, I mean, it just, I mean, it just, it wasn't just one specific moment. It was literally, I saw Colonel Hines at least a couple times a week. And I'm telling you, previous to that, most of my battalion commanders, I probably saw in very specific um, scheduled meetings, right? Like a maintenance meeting or whatever. And it was always like, you can tell that they were talking down to us or they were, you just had that feeling they were just, you know, like they had to remind you they're the commander. I'm like, I know you're the commander. I'm looking at your chest. Whereas he would walk in and he just like, and, and if he asked you, Hey, what's up? He, he's not talking about work. He's literally like, you know, what do you like, what's going on? You know? And it was, it was very, it was very obvious. And you immediately felt like, man, this guy, he gets it, you know? 
and it, it's not just me. I'm not being biased. I ask anybody who served to them, they'll give you the same answer. It was a consistent everyday encounters where he's just, you know, of course he's the commander. He knows he's the commander. We know he's the commander, but you know, he was mostly trying to make connections with us. And I think that's probably, and correct me if I'm wrong, sir, but that's probably how we got the pulse of the unit and who was where and what strength and weaknesses we had, you know, with maintenance, with tactics, with all that stuff. But it was a consistency. It wasn't like one specific moment. Although that PTA training session, I, that's where we turned the corner and just accelerated. We're like, oh my God. I was like, if this is, if this is like, <laughs> if this is really what it's like, I'm going to his next command. So yeah, that's good. No, uh, sorry. No, you're good. Uh, he, Raph said something like, we talked about this and he was just like, I wouldn't mention that because it's not going to be funny, but he literally just said a quote is, so after the deployment, I went to Hawaii, went to this ball and all this stuff, this gala and uh, Raph, Raph and some of the other warrants grabbed me and I'm all shaved and high and tight and stuff. And they grabbed a pair of ACUs, grabbed like random name tapes and stuff and put them on me. So I think I was like a new, like a W1 Woji bear. And uh, they gave me like Anderson on my uniform, or whatever. And they're like, hey, we're going to go visit Colonel Hines and play a prank on him. So I was this brand new pilot from Rucker. And I like come in and uh, just I'm standing at uh, parade rest in front of him. And he's just looking at me like, who's this guy? I don't think Raph shaved that day. And he's like, oh, but thanks for shaving today and showing up, you know. <laughs> and uh, he's just like, so what's your story? Like, what's your deal? And I was like, well, I'm checking in in like three weeks. And uh, I'm just here to get the pulse of the unit, sir. I want to let you know I'm a hard charger. I don't want any of the crappy jobs. You know, I don't need to be cleaning bathrooms and doing all the stuff. I'm a hard charger, and I want the I want all the cool stuff up front. And he just looked at me, and he's just like, "Are you kidding me?" <laughs> like, and, we, and then he, he he's like, "I know you from somewhere." And I was like, "I don't know." Like I had my sleeves down, so he couldn't see any tattoos. And then he kind of like got it, and it was just this like reunion of just like, "Oh my god, this is funny." It kind of turned out the way it did, but that's the type of commander you were, man. You were just open and personable, and we knew we knew it would be funny because you could take a joke. It, it was hilarious. I remember that that real well where, where the desk was and all that, you know. And, uh, and I do remember Raph. It wasn't that he didn't shave; he hadn't had a haircut probably like three weeks. But that was normal <laughs> enough. You know, me and him talked about that regularly, and he, he was usually in the front lane rest when I was talking about it. But but yeah, I remember that day. That was awesome. And you know, him seeing me in the hangar and stuff. I I told the XO when I got there that you weren't going to see me. Now I hate desks. I don't like to be in the office. I'm going to be down in flight line or with HAC or the three five guys wherever. It was. I, I thought that's where the commander needed to be. You got to pick where you're supposed to influence the battle, whether it's in peacetime or downrange. And that's really just because I enjoyed being down there with the boys and the girls. I mean, and, yeah. So that was a no brainer. Yeah. And just another anecdotal piece here. I probably used to go visit Colonel Hines, you know, as much as I can, just, just to say what's up. And I'd never done that with another battalion commander. I had never just randomly dropped in and be like, Hey, sir, what's it like? It just, it doesn't happen. I bet you most pilots would tell you the same thing, but with him, you're like, well, fuck, sorry, push it, delete that. But you know, with him, we would, uh, you know, if I was like anywhere near the S shops, I would just be like, well, he's around the corner. Let's see if he's in, if he's in it. It's true. He was never in his office, but every once in a while I'd run into him and just to, you know, just say what's up. And I'd never done that with, especially the previous command that you would never find me in that hallway. Never. I, I would avoid it like the plague. Yeah, you got to have that open door that, that you've got to be accessible at every, I mean, when I was brigade commander, I drove my secretary crazy because I was like, if they want to come in, let them come on. I, I had people in my office all the time. I didn't get a lot of work done, but I got a <laughs> lot of interaction done with, with the people. So yeah, it's, that's, yeah, you got to have that open door. The guy replaces the brigade commander and had a glass door installed with a lock on it to keep people out. And the first thing I did was prop it open. I'm like, no, just prop, leave it propped open. Don't ever shut that again. So I just want to um, point out or maybe draw out a lot of people when they get into command positions, we're, we're used to sort of running our own thing as a, when you're the specialist, when you're building up, you're running your own stuff, you're achieving the standard that you're setting for yourself. And then when you get in a position where you're managing people to do that and you're leading them to do that, people tend to have a sense of fear that your output now is other people's product. Like what they're doing is that that's your output and that's how you're getting assessed. And I see people when they move into these command positions, 
people who hated being micromanaged themselves end up unfortunately with a micromanaging style and that they don't often know that they're doing it. They're just trying to control the output and they think that that's the leadership function. So there's something very different about someone who can have that uh, personable interaction and let people, let people run and let them fail. How did you get to that point of being able to let people like Ralph run around with his long hair and get, get the job done for you? Uh, you know, I, th I think it was probably the way I being brought up even in the 10th mountain when I was there, but really in the 160, they expect you to do, you know, to execute on your own. So I got used to that. Um, and my, one of my biggest mantras is always, you've got to have somebody able to step up, take your place when something happens to you. They can't do that. If you're micromanaging them all the time, tell them how to do stuff. I was more fond of telling what the end state I wanted to get to, which is to me, everything's about in state and then letting them figure out how to get there. Um, I might've been able to tell them exactly how to get there and it'd be the fastest way, but they were going to learn that way. So I was, you know, if, if it's an ugly baby in route, so be it, it's an ugly baby, but as long as you get to the end state, I was a happy camper. Um, and, and I wasn't worried about, you know, you know, I, I never was one of those guys. I did this, I did that. It was really about the unit, about the mission for, you know, doing America's work. So it's the people who are more worried about, the optics are the ones that you're talking about that they become micromanagers. And, and I had a couple of people work for me that I'd let them have all the rain they could take. And then they ended up being micromanaging battalion commanders. I watched it. Um, and it was surprising and disappointing, you know, cause I learned probably not to micromanage from other people that didn't micromanage me. And I really don't like to be micromanaged. So it, it usually gets ugly. And the result, the end state of somebody not micromanaging and having a style like yours is it gave me as an end user a sense of um ownership like i genuinely felt like kind of like what mike just said i was like you know i'm i'm not part of this i'm not just being you know i'm not attached to the unit i am the unit that was the difference and it was it was it was amazing so I, go ahead no go ahead melon i was just gonna say how how did you, Kelly, because you're obviously in a position now, you're still getting assessed by people above you. They're going to have, like you were saying there earlier about the, uh, the 58 that got damaged with the explosion. There's still going to be a sense of people wanting to push you to control the people below you. Like I know that that's every military organization I've ever seen. How did you act as a buffer or how did you get into that position where you did not pass that on? Uh, it's doing the right thing. You really, you really can't just because they want you to launch, you, you let your guys do it. You don't, I think part of being the leader is being that, um, intestinal fortitude to tell the higher ups we're not doing X or I mean, I am going to do this. You know, when I was told I wasn't the one safety is like, I'm, we're going to do it. My boss had told me, I don't know how many times don't land on the X that, you know, land on the Y, which for, you know, civilian speakers land way away from the target, make the infantry guys walk in. I asked if you guys where they wanted to go. If they wanted to go on the target, we went on the target. If I thought the risk was worth it, um, you've got to be able to tell your bosses, you know, the, the truth. I had, you know, we had a lot of pressure in Afghanistan, launched medevac immediately. It didn't matter if the weather was bad. It didn't matter if we had real intel on what was going on. Um, sometimes it turned out to be a broken leg and we were told the guy was going to die for five minutes. Um, I caught a lot of flack because when the weather in Afghanistan, anybody's been there, seen a sandstorm at night um, and you can't see, a quarter of a mile launching two medevacs into that and probably losing them was just not worth the risk. Well, my boss would call and I was like, I am not launching those. Um, and they didn't overrule me, thank God, but uh, cause I just wasn't going to do it. That would have been one of those I'd have gotten relieved over that or I'd have flown myself. Then that way, if nobody came back, it would have been me not coming back. Um, so you, you've got to, you can't just be the yes man. It's hard because most people want to be the yes man because that's how you get promoted. That's how you get to be the, the, the person that the, the senior leader likes because you just do what he wants and you tell him what he wants to hear. Um, and that's not, that's not the way to do that in my book. And I, I started out early on with that. I've had more than a few discussions with my, my boss um, that didn't go well, but I was I'm just a little bit hard headed. Um, I came into service wanting to make major because I had enough prior service as, a, as an enlisted guy that I could retire as a major. So I was, that was kind of how I attacked everything. I'm like, I'm going to do what's right. If I get thrown out as a major, so be it. So. I think it's such a, man, you really nailed it. Like 
in, in my career right now, like there's so many parts of that with just where we're at with the global conflict and everything else and transitioning from the GWAT, you know, it's just everybody's trying to figure out where we, where we sit, like what's our job and it's the yes machine. And it's just like, hold on a second, man. Like, look, if we can't do this, then we need to say we can't do this. Like, you can't just say yes, because, you know, yes has been learned in blood. You know, we, we like you said, we, we've launched and we've done missions. You know, some of the best people in the world are like, hey, yeah, we can go do that, whether it's ego or pride or, you know, just because. Um, and then ultimately, we, we we're our own undoing and we've lost lots of, you know, Operation Red Wings, for example, is absolutely perfect. Like that should never have happened. Um, but multiple people were yes, 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 and wanted to push it. And there was lots of people saying, no, don't do it. And, you know, ultimately that's what happened. But I think that's so important, especially, um, I want to say the experience. There's a lot of guys, especially that are active duty now, at least on, that's growing on my side, um, that don't have combat experience. You know, they're just not deploying into those arenas anymore. And that's that's leaving. And it's so hard to like to hang on to and force that on to guys that aren't that haven't experienced that or deployed with that type of thing. Um, that hey man, like sometimes we aren't gonna go be, even though it looks like we should, but like you said, you gotta weigh the risk. Like I hope that people are able to circle back and listen to some of their stuff. I know that a lot of our listeners are military, there's former military, and then there's heaps of people out there in civilian. And there's these lessons in leadership that uh, Kelly's talking about here of establishing commanders intent, letting your people fail, you know, communicating the end state, and then being able to say no to the people above and take that pressure and perhaps be judged on the results, but you results over a period of time rather than in, in that exact example. It's, it's, uncommon and as kelly said there he he had guys blown he gave them free reign and they unfortunately ended up as micromanagers and that that is much more natural than giving people free reign giving them that intent and the left and right of arc to find their own path i hope people are able to you know go back over this a little bit and think about it in their own life how they're whether they're going down that micromanaging route or whether they're able to give people that uh that free reign there's a lot of stuff in there as well where Kelly's been talking about the training, taking a full year to train up for a deployment and starting with the individual personnel files, going through every single guy's jacket. I mean, that's a lot of work and a commitment to not being in the office out, out with the guys. And I mean, there's not like that work, that office work doesn't stack up. I'm sure there, Kelly, you know, you still got to get back and that staff work still needs to be done. There's a lot in there. So uh, I know we're coming to the end of the episode and this is, you know, Raph and I talked about this one, but so 30 plus years of service, Kelly, all these awesome stories, experiences that are like, you know, we could go on for days about it. Um, what are you doing now that you're retired? You're sitting here with a, a gamer headset on as a microphone. You got a beard, you got a hoodie on, you're, you said you already threw, threw back a couple cold ones. Uh, what's Kelly Hines doing now with, with retirement? Well, you know, the one thing I would say that all your military listeners, there is life after the army, after the military. Um, yeah, you know, nothing's going to be like it was in the military. You're not going to have that camaraderie. You're not going to have the, the fulfillment as much, but, but there's life out there. So, you know, I'm a, and you know, love my place, love the house, love seeing the wife, you know, miss the soldiers, don't miss the BS. I, I got a theater room in there with a giant screen that I play Call of Duty on. So I'm still trying to be, you know, the soldier thing. And I, and I, I might be able to kick some 10 year olds butt pretty regularly. So my, my kill to death ratio is actually positive. So I'm doing well. Um, getting used to the civilian life, you know, it's, I, I have a, couple of guys that I work with I've known for 20 years they were in the regiment with me so that's what drew me here but I'm learning still but a lot of leadership stuff I did in the army is here I just have to know which way to go with it you know how to lead the people that do work for me but it's not as intense the mission focus isn't there it's you know I'm used to my wife's having a whole lot more trouble with it than I am because she doesn't have the built-in social life of all the, the officer's wife and all the formals and the hail and farewells. I miss the beer pong on the big island. You know, that's a problem. I have to, you know, I, I drink a beer with my son, but that's not the same as the chapel. Um, 
but I'm having a great time. It's, you know, there's other challenges out there. I haven't, haven't given up. Like I told Raph, I'm still running, um, still making a difference. I think uh, I still try to mentor everybody. I, I, I pretty much the same as my door is open. I, and I walk around the office talking to people more than I do in my own office, which puts me there late sometimes. But, um, but I do treat it more like a job. It's more of a balance thing. So I, I leave at 1800 and I go home because it's, it's that, you know, that time of my life where I'm not trying to get promoted anymore. Um, for me to get promoted would be to take the owner's job. <laughs> I don't want to own the company. So I'm, I'm doing well. How do you, tra- how have you been able to translate that, uh, that commander's intent, that, uh, free reign leadership style? Have you been able to take that into a corporate, you know, profit bottom, bottom line, very important different types of uh, business pressures. Yeah, you have to, you can't say, hey, the mission is this, we're going to do X, we're going to attack it, but you can treat it the same. There is a mission. So what is the end state? Now you got to do a lot of explaining what I mean when I say end state. Um, I found a lot of the, the civilians that work with me aren't used to that jargon. So I use it to my benefit to kind of turn them into almost a military operation, but make it fun. Um, and I also transitioned my my Friday night beer calls I used to do right arm nights in the army on Friday. I, I grabbed the guys that work for me as much as possible. We hit a bar on the way home. You know, we have my two beers. We sit there and we don't talk about work and we BS and it's building the team. So there's a lot of things I did in the army that translated right into that. Um, I you know, you can't say some of the stuff like I used to do, but it's it's really it's reading the people around you, knowing when you can say something when they can't. Um, and some of them have surprised the hell out of me and taken right to almost being like, you know, warrant officers um, and, <laughs> and they enjoy it. Um, and they have some of the same challenges, you know, the, yeah, with warrant officers, they want to run off and do what they want to do sometimes. So it's. Because yeah. I reckon there's a lot of people who are unable to transition, you know, like they, they, they don't take those leadership lessons and translate them because it's got, it's a big change. It's not, it's not that same command authority position but you right. can still have the same philosophy of giving people free reign versus being a market manager having a door open spending time with the the doers not the, the paper for paper people yeah leadership leadership just got to apply it the right way well well we're gonna we're gonna thank thanks everyone for your time for staying with us this long i mean this there's a lot in this episode and i really encourage people to circle back and listen to this again maybe with a notepad and pen which I'm legit going to be doing myself. Uh, some lessons in leadership here from uh, Kelly about how he came up with his own style, what he saw as a, a young company commander and being able to adjust his leadership style to match the people below him. And there's a whole lot of stuff there about reading the people. And he took that with him all the way through to his senior command positions. He talked in there, there was a word manipulation was used, which was effectively getting buy-in rather than ordering people to do it. There was... Uh, Raf referred to having extreme trust in Kelly and understanding that there was always a risk versus benefit. And when uh, being tasked with a, a higher risk mission that Kelly had already done that assessment and it was not being done just for metrics and just for uh, BS type stuff. You heard Kelly talking about a major piece of training for the deployment, taking a year assessing capabilities of individuals and then building up from single aircraft missions all the way up to the, the really large scale. So he was able to match mission to capability. He knew his A team and B team. A team did get the hardest missions, but he knew he'd have to rotate the Bs in as well to get them ex- exposed. And he had a big uh, personality match for commanders and he shifted individuals around to build up uh, a broad base across the different companies. And then you heard that whole open door policy uh, that Kelly had there, the, the beer pong on a Friday and he's taken that with him uh, and that ability to generate commander's intent and get it across the guys and always been able to take the pulse of the unit. So I know I've taken a lot out of this, this uh, <laughs> masterclass from the, the Darth Vader, the Marlboro man, having him back on for a second run. And I just, I just want to uh, really thank you for spending the time with us again, Kelly. Uh, is there anything that you wanted to leave anyone else out there with? Is there any uh, bombs or wisdom you're going to drop drop at the end of the, the episode uh, not not really prepared to do that oh, i had a great time uh, hopefully that I, I didn't ramble on too much i tend to do that I, I really did fly by the seat of my pants a lot and just use instinct i didn't talk about instinct but i i, I kind of do that um and, and you know the voice thing that's one thing that came in handy everybody knew me in the dark in the battalion so i could i could be in the total <laughs> dark and, 
they knew it was a battalion commander when we was talking, so that came in handy. But um, no, you, you know, Raph busted me out about beer pong. He didn't mention I won the beer pong. I think I did. <laughs> I did. Me and no. the chap were on the same team. We won. I, if you remember, I mentioned in the last in the last podcast, I said you and the chaplain literally crushed everybody, and the shot that won your match was from you, and you were standing on one leg. And I don't know if because you were aiming that way, or because the two beers had just caught up to you, sir. That's well, I, I don't think I listened to my two beer limit myself that night. Neither did you. So yeah, nobody did. No. Yeah. Well, Thanks guys. For having uh, me. A cracking episode, Kelly. Thanks for, for coming on and uh, we appreciate everything about uh, what you've done with these guys. You know, I have nothing but uh, envy that these guys got to, to work with you on that deployment. Now, I hear a lot about it offline. So good luck to you and your family. I know there's uh, some graduations coming up and maybe some more hunts before the season's done. So uh, all the best to you and your family and uh, to all the listeners out there. Thanks for stopping by and stay focused and we'll see you next week. Thank you.